The following message was given at Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. Let's, uh, let's pray. Father, indeed we come. Oh, what haunting words to hear. Oh, what rebellion to, to worship the tree and the rock that you have created. To put our hope in things that cannot save. To lust after the things of this world that delight us and tempt us and, and seek to draw us away. And yet you are a merciful God. A God filled with steadfast love, slow to anger abounding in your love for your people. Oh, Lord, help us to be in awe of this love. Lord, help us to be reminded of where we have been rescued from, uh, what we really, uh, truly deserve, your eternal wrath and judgment. Lord, we marvel at your kindness to us. We praise you. May it stir within us a great love for you and a worship that, that uh, will ring throughout your creation. Uh, for all eternity. Lord, we uh, are thankful for the work that you do in us. We're thankful for the ministry of the Word. You stir our hearts to you as you remind us of your great love, as you continue week after week to call us back, to uh, help us to behold uh, your glory in the face of Jesus. Lord, I just wanted to lift up the uh, Reformed Baptist Network and the, the labors there. And uh, Lord, I know that there's uh, much good that's happening through these labors as they, as these smaller churches uh, labor together uh, for the good of your kingdom. And Lord, as it is with all groups of people, uh, especially groups where there is a particular uh, hunger to know truth, to take your word serious and to live faithfully. Uh, there can be, at times, difficulty doing that well as we, uh, as we uh, really struggle to know truth and to understand it and to, and to labor and to care for those who see things slightly differently or come to different conclusions. And so, Lord, we pray you'd protect this network. We pray that there would be, uh, that there would be a, a good work that's being done there through the uh, humility of men who have grown to love you. We pray for the time that, uh, that Pastor Brian and Pastor Tim are with this group this week, all the meetings and the encouragement and the ministry of the word. We pray it would be edifying to them and they would be encouraged. We pray, Lord, that you would uh, continue to do a good work through this organization. Lord, we, uh, we're grateful for the the local labors. We do pray for Redeeming Grace Church. We pray for Pastor Don. And I'm sure there's uh, some discouragement there as the, the man that they called to labor there has decided not to come. And so they re, re begin their, they begin again their efforts to find a man. We pray that you would bring the man of your choosing at the time of your choosing. That there would be, uh, that you would bring them a co labor and eventually to be, uh, the one that uh, really unifies the body through the proclamation of, of your word as Pastor Don retires. Um, but, Lord, we, we just pray for your protection there. We pray that uh, you would be doing the work to really stir within this group a, a love for you. Pray for Sovereign Grace Bible Church in Warden as well. 
I know that the labors can be weary. And I was just thinking about that this week. Uh, Lord, we do pray for Paul. We pray you'd uphold him and encourage him, strengthen him. Uh, give him a great love for you and for his people. And Lord, until you provide a co-labor, that you would be his strength and his uh, refuge. And you would, you would give him the strength to do all that you call him to do. Lord, we love you. May the word be uh, edifying this afternoon as you speak to us. Uh, Lord, stir within us again a great love for you that, uh, that really propels us this week to, to love our neighbors well, to live for your glory, and that we would not be bound by fear, but free uh, in the knowledge of the grace we have in Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to be in Genesis, starting in Genesis chapter 3, verse 14, and then a portion of Genesis 4. My intent this afternoon is to, uh, to help us to see uh, this God of mercy, this God who uh, has been rebelled against, and then to see how he... Uh, has from the very beginning desired to have a, to be with his people and to have his people know him. And there's great blessing in that. I'm going to begin in Genesis 3, verse 14. This is the word of the Lord. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed you are above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the fruit of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken. For you are dust. And to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve. Because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord said, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And then I'm going to skip down to Genesis 4, verse 8. Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, Abel, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to you from the ground. 
and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face as I shall be hidden. I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, revenge shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain, then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nob, east of Eden. This is the word of the Lord. A few notes from this morning that I just wanted to, I, I was running out of time, and so I skipped a portion, but I just wanted to, to loop back to make a few more comments in regards to our experience as those who experience this shame of being cast out. There is, a, on the other spectrum, well, most of us experience this as a fear, a fear of being rejected or disapproved of. On the other spectrum is a, a person that has no regard for you or for others. And they're not fearing your opinion because they really, frankly, don't care what your opinion is. They have very little regard for others. And this is as equally damning and, and uh, difficult to deal with. They often will use uh, other people's fear and shame to control them, to withhold love, to gain performance, to use it for oppression. And so we see this same thing, this cast out shame, this shame uh, where it hardens a heart, where a person becomes blind to this. And then they use this natural shame that we have uh, to control and to oppress. Sometimes um, uh, when they're in a relationship with another person, uh, the person that they're controlling or oppressing will be trapped because there will be great fear and social stigma for trying to remove themselves from that or to tell people about the situation, to try to communicate. And oftentimes when they do, it's hard to understand what they're saying because this is so out of the norm for most of our experience. And so both people can be bound to this shame, one oppressing and the other one trapped for fear of what people will think about the situation they're in and, and how they're being treated. And so sometimes these situations will go on for years without ever being realized. Um, really, uh, anything that makes us different uh, can be used and felt as part of this outcast shame. You know, little kids, when they uh, go to the eye doctor for the first time realize they need glasses, it's a pretty traumatic thing for them to bring the glasses home and then think about wearing the glasses to school. Because now they're different than their peers, and they're obviously different, and now the difference can be actually be a point of being attacked. And we see that fear is now I'm different enough that people are going to pay attention to me, and they're going to attack me. And so it tr creates a tremendous fear. Within the church, and in, even within our community, 
difference often generates a tremendous fear. Uh, uh, if someone is among us and they're divorced, if someone is among us and they're older and single, uh, people that are among us that have uh, had different hardships, maybe experienced bankruptcy or lost a business, uh, people among us who have children who uh, are living in rebellion and aren't walking with the Lord, those things tend to separate us out and distinguish us from each other and can be a tremendous point of this outcast shame where we feel like people are watching and looking and seeing us in our difference. And it can cause us to draw back and to really live in the context of this shame. What would others? What are other people thinking about me and judging me? And so we have to realize that this is, you know, I was talking to some people after service. And this is, uh, this permeates our human experience. And it's really worth the time to think through, how is this? The question isn't, am I impacted by this? The question is, how are you impacted by it? How is it impacting your life now? How are you responding to it. And uh, it's one of the reasons that we need to hear the gospel, Lord's Day after Lord's Day, because our we're like a vehicle with a, with a, that's out of alignment, that pulls to the ditch. And if you take your hands off the steering wheel, it will automatically just drift back into the shame and the condemnation of it and the weight of it. And we're always uh, needing to hear the gospel to kind of redirect us, to reorient us back uh, so that we can Find rest and hope and be encouraged and not live in this weight and the pressure and the burden uh, in the context of this shame where we feel. This afternoon, my intent really is uh, to just help us to see the very nature of God and that God indeed has always been a God that wanted to be with his people and wanted his people to know him. And, uh, sometimes, you know, just... Sometimes I hear people talk about uh, this God of the Old Testament. It's just an angry God. He's, he's a God of justice and wrath. And then in the New Testament, this kind, benevolent, merciful God shows up. And it just can't be further from the truth. And uh, so I wanted to see quickly um, the experience and fear of being an outcast is a consequence of sin. And indeed, as we see God dealing with his creation after sin entered, we do see that this separation is a consequence of sin. Relational separation is a consequence of sin, and our separation with God is a natural consequence of sin. And we see um, God dealing with uh, casting them out of the garden. Uh, we see him uh, dealing with Cain and and. There's consequences of this sin. that He's going to be a fugitive and a wanderer. And then later uh, in uh, Genesis 6, as the, the wickedness spread and sin spread throughout all creation, uh, we see eventually God say, For behold, I will bring a flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh, which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything on earth will die. And really that should be the natural a response from a holy and righteous God that that we should we should expected that that the book should be much shorter than it actually is and about four pages in it should end with God was just and he annihilated his rebellious creation I'm so thankful that we have the rest of it that shows this God this God of steadfast love and mercy 
It is the fundamental brokenness of all of our human condition, though. This, this realizing that my shame has broke things and that I have this natural separation between me and God. And it is God's kindness to help us see that and actually bring us to life as we understand the, the significance of that. It is a right, it is right to be seeking to reestablish a relationship with God and one another. Um, but uh, what a difficult life. What a really pathetic life if we are caught up in this shame where we are just seeking the favor of God, seeking to reestablish this relationship, fearing those around us, trying to get their approval and their appreciation and not be rejected. It is really a pathetic life that we can be drawn into as we respond to this natural feeling of separation and distance and brokenness of relationship. What is unexpected about all of this is God's response to it. It is just absolutely amazing how God responds to this. Because from the very beginning, instead of just issuing the death and eternal punishment, we see God dealing with his people mercifully. And uh, we see him even in the, from the, as even as he's issuing the curse in Genesis 3.15, we see this wonderful declaration of a promise. That yes, there's going to be a, a future of difficulty and enmity and strife, but he says there's a victor coming. And that's part of his promise. In the curse, we see this beautiful promise of mercy that I am bringing a victor. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. But this victor is coming that will indeed bruise his head. And uh, that... in inaugurates this promise and this outworking of this this work of God to to deal with his people with mercy. Then we see in Genesis 3.21 this glorious text, and it's really kind of just stuck in there, and oftentimes we we miss how profound this is. But right before God sends him out of the garden, we see this miraculous thing that he does. It's beautiful. Thing that he does. 21 says, And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. And all of a sudden we see what an amazing act of mercy. He didn't send them out naked, although they should have been. I mean, it was, it was nice of him, merciful, just to cast them out instead of annihilate them. But he clothed them. And he didn't use the, the fig, I mean, the the, uh, the leaves like they had been trying to do. He gave them a durable covering, a, a fit covering, a covering that would sustain them and, and protect them. And we see this glorious display of mercy. And then we find out that this is a, a foreshadowing of a coming sacrifice where God will finally sacrifice and provide a, a final covering for his people as he sacrifices his son and takes the righteousness of his son and clothes us with it and provides for the greatest need that we have to finally be reconciled to God, finally be put back in the right relationship. And so we see this beautiful act of mercy here. And I, I regularly, when I meet with people, I regularly start in Genesis chapter 2, even if I'm working with pastors. I start in Genesis 2. We talk about what's going on, what's broken. 
And then we talk significantly about this verse. This beautiful act of mercy. We see the very character of God on display in this verse that should stagger us. Why would this God, who, whose creation He put in the middle of His garden and He lavished them with all these blessings and all this wonder and this splendor, they denied Him, they turned from Him, they chose to to consider him to be not good enough. And yet, we see this tremendous act of mercy as he casts them out. This durable covering, this fitting covering. And again, we see the beginning, the outwork of the, of the gospel being presented to us. This really marks out this merciful faithfulness which characterizes God. Um, while all men deserve to be eternally separated from God. He put his glory on display by initiating a special relationship with a small group of people soon to come. And then we see this God in a clearer sense as a covenantal God, a God who establishes a relationship with a people and out of love for them says, I am going to treat you in a very special way. You are going to be my people and I am going to be your God. And we see he is a covenantal God, an initiating God, a God that comes to a people and gives them a context. And we find out throughout the Old Testament that those people that he established a covenant, this love relationship with, were never faithful. They never followed through. They never met their end of the covenant. Yet we see over and over again God being, because of his covenantal love and covenantal relationship with them, he is merciful to them. He always fulfills his end of the covenant. He is steadfast and faithful and true to the covenant. As God was expressing his covenant love and care for his people, he condescended even to Moses. And when, when uh, after he had rescued his people, brought them into the wilderness, uh, we see him as he is communicating with Moses, describe his very character. And that is described for us as the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on their children and the children's children, the third and fourth generation. But the character of God, this covenantal God, is on display as merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And that is important, <clears throat> that as we think about our uh, shame as it relates to being an outcast, that that shame that we feel at times is still in the shadow of this God that is merciful and gracious and steadfast in love, and desires to have a relationship with us, and is not holding his thumb over us, or waiting for us to fall so he can point out our failure, or he's not a God of gotcha that is waiting for us to sin again so he can, he can again point out our weakness. He is a God of mercy. He's a God that is steadfast in his love for us. Throughout God's interaction with his people, 
and through the prophets he sent God uh, the prophets he sent God most often reminds him that he wants most of all for them to know him and to draw near to him it's interesting when you read through um, Ezekiel and I started underlining this a while ago all the places and all the things that it says God is, has done this or will do this or is doing this why so that they will know that they, that he is God God desperately wants us to know him and to be in a relationship with him, uh, to draw near to him, to understand who he is and love him because of his mercy and because of his grace for us. The psalmists often respond, uh, remind us of the character of God, and not only in, in this, uh, communicating his, his characteristics, but also talking about the benefits to us of those characteristics. This God of mercy and this God of grace is a refuge. He knows that we desperately need protection and care, that we need a refuge. In our shame, even living in this separation from Him and struggling with the fear of men, God, He's a place of refuge. He's not like, He's not one to be feared in a sense that I have to draw away from Him. He's safe because He is my refuge. He is my strength. He is the rock of refuge, a strong fortress. He is indeed good. And so we can draw near to this God. We can rely on this God. This God wants us to come near to Him. He wants us to draw near and to seek Him. He wants us to know Him and to have a relationship with Him. He does not want us to be bound up in this outcast shame. He doesn't want us to identify with it or be known as that people anymore. He wants us to be known as his people. And then, as the, the culmination of this mercy and grace has been on display, this covenantal love, he sends his son, the Emmanuel, meaning God with us on a rescue mission. He sends his son into the into this defilement, into the brokenness, into the curse, that, uh, into the rebellion and rejection of, of God to live under the law, to live a perfect life, to live a, a righteous life, to live a life never bound up in fear or in shame, but always perfectly loving, perfectly giving himself so that he could be the one rejected so that we could be brought near. He could be the one despised so that we could be accepted. He could be the one that, that uh, measured up and performed perfectly so that we could not fear being cast out in our weaknesses and our frailties. You don't have to fear not being accepted. Jesus met every standard of acceptance. You don't have to fear not measuring up. Jesus measured up perfectly for you. You don't have to fear being approved of. Because your approval is not based on you or your performance. It's based on this covenantal love. It's the display of the character of God and the work of Christ on your behalf. So what does this mean for us particularly? Well, as we think about the, our glorious salvation, the glorious work of God to draw us to him, uh, we read things in Ephesians 1, that we were called before the foundation of the world. That you are not a general loved, you're not loved in a general sense. You are loved in a particular way. That you, as you feel your outcast shame and you feel that 
you might still have condemnation for your weakness, your frailty. Remember that you have been called before the foundation of the world. That your name was on the mind of God before things were created. That you're, It's not a general relationship that God wants you to have with Him. He wants you to relate with Him as the one that before the foundation of the world was called to Him. He doesn't want you to draw back in fear. He wants you to cling to Him and to come to Him. You have been saved from all the sin and guilt and condemnation. You have been justified and put back into a right relationship. As Christ took the punishment and the penalty for your sin, you were declared righteous and put back into right relationship with Him. You are no longer an outcast. You've been reconciled to God. Everything that stood between you and God has been fully forever removed. There is no more a sin. There is no more guilt that stands in the way that, that everything that prohibited that relationship has been removed and you have been fully reconciled. You have been redeemed. You have been purchased. You were in a slave condition, as an outcast, but Christ willingly exchanged himself for you. He entered into that slave condition. He entered into the condition of curse and being an outcast and being rejected. And in that, he released you. You are now treated as he is, as he was, uh, uh, in a perfect relationship, as if you were righteous, as if you were never bound in slavery. And brothers and sisters, you have to remember this is not a doctrine for them or a doctrine that we talk about generally. Christ stood on the hill and saw you in your bondage and said, I love you. I love, it has to be a first person reality. I was in slavery and I have been rescued. Christ looked at me and said, I will exchange myself for him or her. It's about us. It's about you individually. It has to stir us. We have to think about these things in first person. That Christ, you have been redeemed. That Christ exchanged himself for you. That you were adopted. You who were an outcast are no longer in that situation. You've been brought in. You wear the name of the king. You sit at the king's table. You are treated as family. You can sit in the couch. You can. You have a closet to your own. You enjoy the comfort of the surroundings because you have been adopted in. You are no longer estranged and outcast. You belong. You have a place. You have a people. You are loved. You have value. And God wants you to rest in that. Oh, this outcast shame that we experience. Really, we have to take and, and really minimize all of that to wander around in the life that we live in fear and, and really overwhelmingly worried about the opinion of other people and how they view me and will they accept me, will they appreciate me, will they approve of me. Oh, brothers and sisters, let us be reminded of the words that Peter wrote in 1 Peter. But you are a chosen race, a holy priest, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies 
midst of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You are a chosen people. You wear the name of the king. Brothers and sisters, that is the strength for us to overcome this feeling of shame that so binds us in relationships and keeps us at a distance from God. We have to continually be reminded and preach to ourselves the reality of who we are and what our identity is. There's one more place that I want us to look, and that's uh, in Psalm 23. Many of you might have this psalm memorized. It's so familiar that we kind of overlook it. And, and don't even think about it very well. Psalm 23. Really just going to use this to close. I'm very interested in the pronouns in Psalm 23. And obviously David is struggling. He's talking about a valley of the shadow of death. He's overwhelmed. He's afflicted. He's burdened. Uh, he's beyond his strength. Often we get to these places. We we often feel the same. We often, This valley of the shadow of death is a real place where we really do find ourselves at times. But David starts out, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. For his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not I will fear no evil. Really, until this point, I think David is preaching to himself. He's talking about God. Uh, he's referring to his character, his attributes, his kindness, his care. But God is being dealt with in a third person. He's he's referencing God. But right here, this verse, which is exactly in the center of this psalm, the pronouns change. And all of a sudden we see, for you are with me. For you are with me. And we see this personal aspect, because of the truth about who you are, God, you are with me. And the pronouns change here. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table for me. It's no longer he. He's not referencing something out there. He's referencing something near, personal, something that he has a relationship with. He's referring to God as you. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of David, house of the Lord forever. I think it's important that when we think about uh, the work of God and Christ and who we are, that we do not consider God in the third person. He. He is wonderful. We have to pray. We have to consider. We have to abide in and dwell on and remember God in a much more intimate sense. You are my God, you are my refuge. You are my strength. In you do I abide. You love me. 
you have done this work for me. Because I think it's there where we start receiving this strength and this encouragement. There, It's there where my soul particularly is being ministered to, where I indeed am finding a true refuge and a true high tower and sure footing and a true rock. So often I think we we treat God, we communicate with God as though we are still outcasts. Like God's over there. But I can't be over there because I'm an outcast still. He couldn't possibly love me. He couldn't possibly accept me or, or approve of me. But God has purchased us to himself and in that he wants us to have that relationship with him where we are near, we are clinging, we are in the presence of God, and we are communicating with Him in a, in a direct sense, referring to Him in the first person, receiving His care in the first person. Those who are in Christ will never be cast out. Never. Those who are trusting in themselves, in their own wisdom, in their own way, will never know God to be anything other than a judge and them as an outcast. You cannot overcome your status as an outcast through your own effort. You cannot piece together enough fig leaves. You cannot prop yourself up. You cannot do enough to get yourself approved. You cannot do enough good works and, and contribute enough to ever overcome your outcast status. You deserve that status and you were, because you were born in Adam and because you personally have rebelled against God. But as we come to Him, trusting in the work that He's done for us in Christ and put our faith in Him, we are never, ever going to be an outcast again. We have been purchased out of that and into Christ. Those who have been brought into a union with Christ have had Communion with God restored. Outcast shame does not need to influence us as we will never be because we will never be rejected. We will always be fully approved. We will always be accepted because of Christ. Brothers and sisters, consider how the outcast shame is a fabric of your life. And um, I, I, I see it bind people in so many different ways and destroy families and destroy all kinds of circumstances. We need to grow in our faith. And our prayer really this afternoon is, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Show me again the glory of Christ. Show me again that I indeed am accepted and approved of. Help me to live knowing that I will never be rejected. Father, we we pray. Our eyes are so uh, diminished in our ears to hear and, and the circumstances of life inform us of our frailty and that we do deserve to be outcast. We do deserve to be, uh, to be separated from you. Lord, our relationship with you is not based on what we deserve. It's based on the work of Christ and so we rejoice in that. Oh Lord, would that indeed truly be our strength? Oh Lord, fill us with the wonder of our salvation. And free us to live a life fully able to give to one another, to serve, to love, not worrying about and fearing uh, how we will be received. We pray these things in Jesus' name.
Amen. You have been listening to a message from Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. To receive more information about Trinity Bible Church or to support the ministry, go to tbcwyoming.com. That is tbcwyoming.com.